Uh, take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Another uh, thing just wanted to put my spin on to, uh, baptism, really super excited. God's doing some great things across all of our campuses. As Jessica said, 14 people right now are getting baptized over at, at Benton Heights. Last week, uh, I loved it, we had a, a couple a young couple in their 80s that got baptized last week, so that was, that was really neat as well. But if you'd like to know more about a baptism, you could talk to one of the staff. You go to the Info Hub. We'd love to talk to you about that. On the 26th, so just a couple weeks, we'll have baptism uh, here. So uh, just it's that, that opportunity for us to profess publicly that we are followers of Christ, that he is our Lord, he is our Savior. I love what the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the uh, church in Rome. He just was talking about how uh, we, you know, we've, we've, we go into the water and, and we're dead to our sin and we're raised to new life in Christ. Six, uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says it this way, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And there's nothing like celebrating with one another the decision that, decisions that we make to follow Christ. So again, if you'd like to be baptized, come talk to us. We'd love to have that conversation. Well, this is week two in our journey uh, through Holy Week as we are looking forward to uh, celebrating uh, the, 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 the death of Christ, the, the resurrection of Christ on, on Easter. And this series is all about going through some of the events that you know, we talk about, but sometimes we don't put into the chronological order, order that's really helpful in, in really understanding what was leading up to what Jesus did on the cross and in the, his resurrection. And so here we are in Luke, the 19th chapter. And what we see in Luke, in, in the book of Luke, is that he spends 25% of his entire gospel just on this one final week, these last seven days of Jesus' life. It just reminds us of how important all of these events are. And so we've got a lot to learn today as we look at this next event. We're going to talk about the triumphal entry, as Pastor Jake uh, mentioned, uh, what we sometimes call Palm Sunday. And I know we were out of order in what we, how we normally do it, but we really wanted to spend some more time, again, looking at all of these events as they lead up to this culminating point uh, in our faith of the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. The triumphal entry that we're going to look at today is is an event that you see in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the Gospels record this event. There's only probably 10 or so events that all four of the Gospels record because they're, they're also like, like four individuals standing on, you know, four different street corners when a traffic accident takes place. And everybody has a little bit different perspective on things, but all four, again, share this same story. Again, speaking to its importance. We started last week talking about Mary and the, her anointing Jesus at Bethany, just reminding us of the plan that God had ultimately for Jesus to, to die on a cross, for him to be buried. And as they did in their day, they would prepare bur uh, bodies for burial by, by anointing them, by wrapping them with, with spices and oils. And we see her preemptively anointing Jesus' body. And whether she totally understood all of that or not, uh, it was a picture of Jesus being prepared for burial. Again, part of the plan. And that's something that we'll see over and over and over again. These events are all part of the plan. Let's not forget it's part of the plan. Jesus ending up on a cross on, uh, on that Friday, nailed to a cross, is not 
Not a, not a failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of God's plan. Christ on the cross, again, fulfillment of the plan. There, there's a lot to learn that Mary had to teach us last week. We looked at her anointing Jesus. We just, just see in her the modeling of an extravagant worship, of her going above and beyond and just pouring out and just being willing to sacrifice, to, to worship God. And there's just so much to learn uh, as we think about our own worship, about how we need, like her, to be extravagant in our love of Jesus. So with that in mind and what we learned last week, and just as we are looking at this plan that God has, let's look at chapter 19 and try to apply uh, these events and what we can learn from these events as we lead up uh, you know, through Holy Week, lead up to the resurrection of Jesus and the tomb and, and all of that. And let's see what we can learn today from a donkey ride. And so with that, Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. So as, as they're going, if you kind of get the, the geography in your mind, Jericho is east of Jerusalem. And they'd come from Jericho and they're on their way, Jesus and, Jesus and his disciples, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And they're going through... Uh, and they're, they're going to Jerusalem because the Passover, they're going to celebrate with the throng of, of, of humanity, the Passover. And we don't know exactly how many people would have come to a Passover typically. Josephus does, the uh, Jewish historian, he, he gives some indication. But it would at least have been hundreds of thousands of people that would have, would have come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. The Passover, of course, is the, the Jewish celebration of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so they came as, uh, you know, from all around to Jerusalem to celebrate. And on the way, again, from Jericho to Jerusalem, there were two small towns on the way, Bethphage and, and Bethany. And that's where uh, they had been. And Bethany is basically at the top of, a, of Mount, the Mount of Olives. Don't think mountain like Mount Everest mountain, but think more big hill, okay? So again, if you think about the geography, the Mount of Olives is on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And if you have seen a picture of Jerusalem, you've seen the, 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 on the Temple Mount, there's that golden dome. If you kind of think about the common picture of Jerusalem. Well, that picture on the Temple Mount, and you got the, 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 the dome there, the dome on the rock. If you think about that picture, that's the, that's the, the, the view from the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is this, this mount, this big hill that overlooks Jerusalem. You go down one side of the Mount of Olives, and the Kidron Valley is there. So you go down one side, the Kidron Valley, and up the other side, and there's a gate, the eastern gate. And that's the, that's the gate that they would go in, the easiest way right there to get into the temple. And so that was the route. So just get that uh, in your mind. And so they're getting near Jerusalem. Again, this is the last time that Jesus would celebrate the Passover. And so they're on their way. Verse 31, go into the village, Jesus says to them, in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You say this, the Lord has need of it. So as we read this story, just keep reminding yourself this is part of the plan. Okay, what is this? 
part of the plan. Okay, this is just keep, just keep reminding yourself of this. This is part of the plan. So Jesus says, go, two of you, go, and you're going to find a colt, which is just a young donkey, and, and, and you're going to bring it back to me for me to ride into the city is, is the reason that he wants it. And so we need to ask ourselves the question. I think it's kind of interesting to ask yourself the question, well, why is Jesus asking for them to go get this colt? Why is Jesus now asking for an Uber? He's walked everywhere he's been. We don't see in Scripture him riding other, you know, donkeys or other. You don't, you don't see him in chariots or, or other, other things. We always see Jesus walking. And again, we just talk geography. And Jesus is, is at the, they're going to get to the Mount of Olives. It's about where they are. They're on their way there. And the Mount of Olives, you're so, you can see the temple from the Mount of Olives. It's literally down one side of a, of a hill into the Kidron Valley, one side of a valley, up the other side, and the gate is right there. Why in the world would you go to the trouble after you've walked all this way? Why go to the trouble of getting a donkey now, this colt now, to ride just this last little piece, except what are we remembering? This is part of the plan. And so we see this as part of the plan. Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, says in Zechariah 9.9, written hundreds of years before this moment, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophets had predicted this moment. The moment when their king would, the king, the Messiah that was coming, that he would ride a colt, ride a, the foal of a colt into Jerusalem. So Jesus sends them ahead into this town where he knew this donkey would be. Again, a colt is just a young donkey. And so he sends them to go get uh, this donkey. And he knew the disciples would be asked when they get there, why are you taking this donkey? And so he gave them the secret password to unlock unlock. Uh, the donkey upgrade. And so the donkey upgrade password is tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, some people have said that, well, you know, this is just an illustration of Jesus. Obviously, he had gone ahead. He knows this region. Uh, this is where his friends lived, Mary and Martha, Lazarus. They, they lived in Bethany, and so he knew this area. So he knew where, you know, all the, you know, all the Teslas were parked or all the, you know, all the trucks or whatever. And so he uh, goes to where he knows this donkey. This person has this donkey that's never been ridden before. And he knows the, 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 the prophecy. And so he goes to this individual, works out a deal. Hey, in a few weeks, whatever, I'm going I'm to send some of my disciples. And I, could I use your donkey? I'm, they're going to ask for it. And here's the code. They will say, the Lord has need of it. That's the secret code phrase. And when you hear that, just know I'll use it. All I need to do is just ride into Jerusalem. I'll, then I'll get it back to you. Is that okay? And that some would say that Jesus worked it all out. Okay, maybe. What I choose to believe is Jesus, you know Jesus, the one who just last week we were reminded that he, wrote, he raised Lazarus up from the dead. It was a dinner party where Simon the leper was there, that he had, that he had miraculously... Um, 
healed of leprosy. Jesus, the one who walks on water. Jesus, the Son of God who told his disciples. They'd only really get it later, but he told them multiple times on different occasions, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise three days later. He said all of that ahead of time, so he knows how things work ahead of time. I'm just going to choose, just spitballing, that my God, my Savior, is able to figure out where some donkey's going to be and the password to unlock unlock the donkey upgrade. That's my God. And that's what Jesus did. And it says, and I don't know about you, does anybody think that you might have a couple of follow-up questions? <laughs> you want us to go steal a donkey? What you want us to do? You want us to go where? And we're supposed to say what? And, and why are we doing this? You know, probably a lot of questions, but what, here's what they do. Instead of asking questions, what do we see in verse 32? So those who were sent away were sent away and found it just as it had been told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now that phrase, this little passage, these couple verses, are just pregnant, bursting with implications. So they went and found it just as it had been told them. Just exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Just exactly what he said that you're going to find is what they found. Just exactly what, when you untie this colt, what, you, what somebody asks you, and if you say these words, if you say this phrase, then he will, that person will let you take it. It happens just exactly as Jesus told them. The Lord has need of it. That word translated Lord, kurios, is a word that means, uh, it's a title, supreme in authority, God, Lord, Master. And that's exactly who Jesus is. The supernatural master has need of it. And that Jesus, uh, you know, leading up to this point, the disciples had seen him. They'd seen his power in raising the dead. They'd seen his power in, in, in healing blind people and people that are lame. They'd seen, they'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen do all these things that just remind us, reminded them of his power, that he was all-powerful. And now in this moment, as they show up, and as, as it happens exactly as Jesus said it was going to happen, just reminds us that they see him as also all-knowing. Now, I think it's understood that only later, you know, after his resurrection and after all these events, that they would really connect all the dots. And so they don't totally get it right now, but they would someday get who, they, who Jesus really is. And, and all the clues would, would, that he's been laying all along, they would finally get it. And so, and, and so as they begin to put things together, here they are, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. And this is the final time that Jesus would come into Jerusalem. And this time, different than other times, they're going to proclaim him as king. The king of kings has returned. Verse 35, and they brought it, this colt, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So they, they bring this colt to Jesus. Jesus gets on it. He begins to ride it. And again, he's going to ride it down the Mount of Olives, down in the Kidron Valley, up the other side and into that eastern gate, the simplest way to get into the temple area. It wasn't a show of power. For him to come riding this colt, it was a show of humility. The king coming into the capital riding a donkey isn't that vision that we might have of a, the powerful 
conquering war hero that comes riding on, on the magnificent war horse. It's not the picture of Alexander the Great riding Bucephalus into, into the city that he's just vanquished. This is the king of kings, the picture of a humble servant king coming into Jerusalem to serve humanity, to give himself up for us. It says that they throw their cloaks on the back of this colt, creating a makeshift saddle for him. Others throw their cloaks on the ground as he begins to ride this donkey again down one side of this valley, up the other side into that eastern gate. Just a little sidebar, there's a lot going on here, but don't overlook the fact, the little, little nugget that it says, that this is the first time anyone had ever ridden this colt. Colts, just like horses, have to be, have to be broken, have to be trained to, uh, to be ridden. And yet, Jesus, the first one to ever sit on this donkey, Jesus rides it. Just a little reminder that Jesus is Lord of everything. Even donkeys and colts submit to the king of kings. It says, as they are drawing near in verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This procession now, as they, go, they begin to, it kind of swells. And we're in Bethany, and you remember Bethany is where Lazarus lived. Bethany is where the miracle of being, someone being raised from the dead happened. And Bethany is this place where everybody heard that story. And so as he comes down, he's on this cold, and, and the people are starting to get excited. There were people that had heard that story. And remember, this is, this is uh, they're on their way to the Passover. So hundreds of thousands of people are, are everywhere. This is a ma- major tell party before there were tailgates, before there was football. This is the original football tailgate party. People are all around and then into that atmosphere. People uh, that had some means would have stayed in Jerusalem because they could afford to have stayed in Jerusalem. Others that not so much, they would have had tents and, and booths and things that they had set up everywhere, this whole area. And as Jesus comes, his fame has spread and they're just worshiping him says the disciples are rejoicing, they're praising God, not just the 12, the, the, the inner circle, but also the others. Remember how many, how many disciples were there in the upper room? Scripture talks about there were 120. So there were more disciples than just the 12. And so they're all there, and they're, they're, they're talking about, what does it say in verse 37? That they began to praise God with a loud voice, uh, for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they're, they're talking about all the cool stuff that, that Jesus has done. And they're shouting that and waving their palm branches, shouting affirmation uh, of, of, of the king, blessings on Jesus, the king who's come. And again, the ful- fulfillment of the scripture. And everybody, you know, that was lost a little bit probably on some people, not quite understanding that, that this is a fulfillment of, fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. Others certainly would have understood that. Some probably just caught up in the moment and, 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 and shouting and, and all that like happens. But there were some that really got it. The disciples that were celebrating him as Lord. Uh, all of the gospel writers except Luke that we're looking at use, and again, we sang it today, talked about Hosanna, that term Hosanna. And as Jake, Pastor Jake said, 
just that idea that, that uh, he's come save us. It's, it's shouting out, save us now, do it now, and be our deliverer. It's a, really a reiteration of Psalm 118. It's what they're saying, deliver us now. And up to this point, Jesus had told them to be quiet about who he is. When he had done major miracles, he would tell them, don't tell anybody that I did this. Uh, one of those examples is in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 20, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, like miracles where he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. And he, he only took a few of the inner circle of his disciples, didn't take even all the disciples, only just a few into that miracle. And then when he does the miracle, he charges them to be silent about it. Up to this point, he didn't want people to know that he was Messiah, not because he was ashamed of that, because he knew that once that got out and once he affirmed that fact, that then they would really want to kill him. And it wasn't time for him to die because God has what? He's got a plan. And it wasn't time yet for the plan. But now, as he's coming into Jerusalem, now he knows within a week it will be time, and the plan is unfolding. And so, because it's time, he, he no longer, this is the first time that he allows them to say that he's the Messiah, to proclaim him as king, and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. He's the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. That he is in the line of David and that he would be the fulfillment of, of the prophetic voices inspired by God. That he would come to save his people. That he would establish a kingdom that would never end. As we think about the crowd that was there, not everyone was proclaiming Jesus as king, as savior. Not everyone was pleased about what was happening. Not everyone was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Not everyone was laying their cloaks down. Not everyone was celebrating, waving palm branches. Not everyone was, was proclaiming him to be king. There were individuals that had other agendas. And they knew what it meant for Jesus to be riding on a donkey, but they saw him as an imposter. And so, listen to the other voices that were there in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, they don't call him Lord. They don't call him master. They don't call him Messiah. They don't, they don't use the phrases everyone else there is using, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So they, they rebuke, these religious leaders rebuke Jesus. You need to tell these people to be quiet. You need to tell them to be quiet because what they're saying is wrong. And Jesus, I'm not going to, this is a Clint Eastwood moment in Scripture. This is a, uh, it, can you just hear the, can you just imagine Jesus telling them, uh, I'm not going to do that. If they don't say it, these rock. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that there is rock everywhere. Stones everywhere. These stones that we are surrounded by will, will cry out who I am if they don't. If you read on, we won't take the time to read on. The next couple, and I would encourage you to later, but I just want you to notice that there's a picture of Jesus pausing in the midst of this celebration and he weeps, Scripture tells us. And he's weeping for the people. He's weeping for Jerusalem. He's weeping 
because he knew that many of these people that have gathered would, would reject him and, and people that were in the city, people in that generation would reject him. And he, he's weeping for, him, for them. He's weeping for this generation, for those who would join the religious leaders of the day and reject him as their king who would reject his forgiveness and reject his grace and reject his mercy and reject the love of God the Father on display through Jesus. It broke his heart. I wonder if Jesus was thinking about us. I tend to think that he was. And some of his tears were shed for this generation. And maybe even you today. If you're here and you've wondered about Jesus, you've, you've contemplated Jesus, but you've never embraced Jesus as Lord. It breaks his heart. He wants to be in relationship with you. We see Jesus weeps. And so we read the text and we've done some noticing and we notice some things in the text, but, but as we often talk about, let's move from the land of talk to the land of do and just think about how we can apply what we learn from this story on this, on this day that we celebrate his triumphal entry. And one of the things I think we can learn from the disciples, this lesson from this donkey ride, is to trust his voice, to trust the voice of our Messiah. He was their rabbi. He was their Messiah. He was their Lord. And, and he, goes, he goes and he tells them, he gives them very specific instructions. I want you to go to this village, this particular place, and, and talk to the owner or, or to get this particular donkey. And this owner, this particular donkey will, will say something to you. And here's what you say back. And all of those things happened just like he said was going to happen. He, they don't just, okay, I know Jesus said to get this one donkey, but it really doesn't matter. And, and they don't just randomly go anywhere. Jesus doesn't say, just go get me a donkey somewhere. He is very specific, and we see that they trusted his voice. There wasn't a lot of questions. They don't ask any questions, even though it seems a little odd. Sometimes our questions that we have keep us from trusting his voice. Can I trust his voice when life isn't working out like I think that it should? Can I trust his voice when culture tells me that I should believe one way when I look at the voice that I see in Scripture and it tells me something different? Can I really trust the voice of God? Can I trust the voice of my Savior when, when I really don't love my spouse anymore? And my culture, my world tells me, well, you know what? Do what feels right for you. You should do what makes you happy. It doesn't matter. If, if, if you've fallen out of love, that doesn't matter. Can I trust the voice and commit and to be committed? Can I trust the voice of my Savior to choose what is moral and ethical when, when what is what is the easy route, the, the, the simpler thing, the thing that would, 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 would get me some return on my investment, even though it's not quite ethical and even though it's different than the voice of, that I see in Scripture, the voice of my Savior, but can I trust that voice? Can I trust his voice with my money, with my stuff? When I look at my budget, I can't afford to give. I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to be generous, it looks like, on paper. Can I really trust his voice, and the disciples choose to trust his voice. And when they choose to trust his voice, what they find out is that Christ has gone ahead. Not literally that he's gone to this guy and talked and worked something out with this guy, 
But what I'm saying is that, that God had worked in that, that, that person, the owner of that donkey's heart. He, he knew ahead of time. He'd worked it out ahead of time because this, again, is part of the plan. And can I trust his voice to trust that God goes ahead of me if I choose to be obedient? And so a second lesson from the donkey ride, if I trust his voice, then I need to respond to that voice with obedience. It's one thing to trust God, but then it's another to take the actual step of obedience, and they take the actual step of obedience. And Scripture doesn't have any record of them having a meeting after the meeting where they're questioning Jesus or they're, or they're struggling to respond. They just go do it, and they're obedient to it. There's a guy, uh, uh, Don, he's in the first service. He, got, he had a chance to retire, and so he's come a couple times into my office, and we've just been talking about uh, with him. He's just trying to figure out what the donkey that God wants him to go get, what that donkey is. You understand what I mean by that? That God has a donkey for us, all of us, that he wants us to go get. And all of us have to figure out, will I trust his voice to go after the donkey that I, it seems like he's asking me to go, go after? Can I trust his voice? Will I respond in obedience? We have to trust his voice. We have to respond in obedience. And again, we notice that when we do that, that he has worked it all out ahead of time. If you go back to the, to, the, to the story, those disciples, they throw their cloaks on the back of the donkey. Others, others throw their cloaks down on the, on, the, on the route, kind of making a red carpet of sorts. And what we see is they go above and, be, above and beyond even what Jesus asked them to do. No, he doesn't ask them to, to put their cloaks on the donkey. He doesn't ask them to throw their cloaks down. They're just responding, just spontaneous worship. It's spontaneous obedience. It's sacrificial obedience. Are we willing to be sacrificial? Are we willing to respond sacrificially? Let that be our response in our obedience. We saw that in Mary last week when she breaks the, the flask of oil and pours out on Jesus. And I think we see it here. You know, back in the day, it was all about layers. Back in the first century, it's all about layers. And, and it says they took off, if you look at the Greek, they took off the outer layer. And the outer layer is the best layer. They took off the best part of their outfit and they laid it down. They sacrificially gave to Jesus, going above and beyond. And then real quick, there's one final thing that I want us to note. To ask ourselves the question, if we had been there, what, how, what our response would be in that moment? What would we do as, as the crowd is celebrating as they are chanting that he's the king and he's come, what would be our response? Would we be like the Pharisees who are rejecting him as an imposter because it impacts our agenda? Would we maybe, maybe be with the people that maybe hear what's going on the, in, from their home or from their place of business, but, but they got other things to do, and so, and so they ignore Jesus as unimportant? Would that be what, where we would be? Or would we be with the crowd proclaiming him as king? Excited to worship. Excited to worship as king. And I would just invite us to consider what, what's our posture as we come into worship today? Are we rejecting him as we sit here today as an imposter? That he's not really the king of kings? Or maybe you're here and you're just, you're just indifferent. You're just ignoring him as, as 
Is it not really a, a, a thing in your life, you know, uh, you know, claiming him as Savior or Lord and you got other things going on and just, he's just unimportant? Or, or have you come today to proclaim him as king? And I would invite you, if you've never proclaimed him as king today, to make that decision. To invite Christ as the Spirit is moving in you. Don't reject him, but embrace him as Savior and Lord. And we'd love to help you on that journey. We often say you can text the word Jesus to 269-231-8692. Again, 269-231-8692. And that'll take you to a place. We'll send you some resources. But more importantly, we'd love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray in a minute. And if you'd like to invite Christ to be your Lord, be your Savior, won't you pray with me in that moment? As our worship team comes back up, I want us to, as we conclude, I want us to have a chance to proclaim Jesus as King, to make room as we will sing for Him in our lives. And, and I want us to look forward to the day that Christ comes back. And when Christ comes back the second time, the next triumphal entry, uh, it's going to be much different than what we read today. And I just want to paint the picture for us from Scripture of what that day will be like. And it will not be him coming as the gentle Savior riding on a donkey. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, and this is look for, looking forward to that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ comes back, there's coming a day that we will all bow our knee. We will all confess him as Lord. I would invite you to do that now. The other picture that we have, again, is not Jesus coming when he comes again, riding on a donkey in humility, but that the next triumphal entry on that day, on that great morning, when Christ returns, the revelator in Revelation chapter 9, 19, verse 11, helps us to understand what that day will look like. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has written that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following behind him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Heavenly Father, I pray in the powerful name of our Savior, the one who came and is coming again, that, Father, that you would remind us of who your Son is. And that we, as your children, that, that we should on this day, submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, because on that day, on that great getting up morning, when you call for the archangel to come and to blow the trumpet, that there will be a day, unlike that day, 
when you come again. And Father, we look forward to that day, that, that great day when we will worship you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts today to make room for the Savior who is coming. God, thank you for the reminder of who your Son is, King of kings. And God, I thank you for that person for the first time today that wants to invite you, your Son, to be their Lord and Savior as you have been drawing them to your side. Thank you, Father, for forgiving them. Thank you, Father, for writing their name in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you, Father, for the eternal place that you have for them in the heaven that you've prepared for them. And now, Father, I pray that you would help all of us to celebrate the reality that that day is coming. And that, Father, we can look forward to it, not with fear, but with anticipation of what's coming. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the reminder today. We pray in Jesus' name.